Sports Talk New York with your hosts, Mark Rosenman and A.J. Carter. Sports Talk New York is sponsored in part by Prince Associates for all your insurance needs, the Phoenix Tube Company, the law firm of Declator Cohen and DePrisco, Solomon Jewelers, and General Needs Charity, serving our homeless veterans with dignity. And now, here are your hosts, Mark and A.J. Joining us now is a man who was drafted by the Texas Rangers in the 1977 Major League Baseball draft. After three years in their farm system, the Rangers sent him to the New York Mets on September 18, 1979. He made his Major League debut with the Mets on August 31, 1980. He won his first Major League start on September 13th against the Chicago Cubs, which then snapped a 13-game losing streak for the Mets. His best season came in 1985. He went 10-8 with a 3.44 ERA and a career-high 191 innings pitched. He was a member of the 1986 World Championship. Mets team, making one appearance that season, pitching one and two-thirds innings in relief in the third game of the season when he went on the disabled list with torn cartilage in his left knee. He would go on to serve as the Chicago Cubs general manager for six years. It is a pleasure to welcome Ed Lynch to WLIE Sports Talk New York. Welcome, Ed. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. It's absolutely our pleasure. You know, we mentioned in the open that you're drafted by the Texas Rangers, but it's interesting to note that your older brother, Chris Lynch, who was also a right-handed pitcher, impressed scouts enough to be drafted three different times. The Cardinals selected him in the 13th round out of high school in 72. He elected to go to college at Miami-Dade instead. The Mets made him a third-round selection in the January 73 draft, and the Dodgers picked him in the 20th round in 74. He didn't sign any of those times. He chose instead to complete his college degree, then go on to law school. What were your thoughts at the time of your brother passing up a shot at, at you know what everyone's dream is of playing Major League Baseball? Well, I knew he was not going to be the type of uh, guy that was going to sign. I mean, he was an excellent student. Uh, at the time that he was drafted at a high school and in junior college, he really had his eyes on becoming a doctor and was really dreaming of going to medical school and, and pursuing a medical degree. degree. That changed over to, uh, to the law, and he is a very successful attorney in Miami at this time. And uh, I think he just felt like he was not, did not have the makeup or the physical ability to get to the top of the game uh, at Major League Baseball. So I think his decision was very, very mature and very profound at the time, and it certainly paid off for him. You, in the meantime, follow athletically in your brother's footsteps at Christopher Columbus High School in Miami, where you were named All-City in Basketball and Baseball. It was your basketball skill that led to a scholarship at the University of South Carolina, where you would end up being a key member of the Gamecocks baseball squad. You also got to play one minute for legendary Hall of Fame coach Frank McGuire on a team that featured Alex English and Mike Dunleavy. How did, number one, what was it like being part of that team, and how and when did the shift totally over to baseball occur and why? Well, I was in a very young uh, student. I was a 16-year-old. I never played a high school base basketball game at age 17. I, I played my entire senior year at age 16. So when I arrived at South Carolina as a freshman, I was coming off a horrible case of, uh, of um, uh, what they call the kissing disease that all the teenagers get. Mono, mono. mono. Yeah, Strangely enough, all three of us knew exactly what that was. Yeah. <laughs> and I was, uh, I was hospitalized during that summer for a couple of weeks and lost about 30 pounds. So when I came, arrived on campus, uh, not only was I, uh, you know, very young, but I was weak. And then I tried to practice. I'm trying to guard Alex English in practice every day. It was certainly <laughs> a humbling experience. The other guy that, who was also on that team was Brian Winters, who was a first-round pick of the Los Angeles Lakers. So we had... 
And he coached in the NBA, I believe, for a short period of time. So we had two NBA coaches and a Hall of Famer, and uh, all three of those guys played at least 10 years in the NBA. So I was, uh, I was, I knew going into my second year, they recruited, you know, seven or eight more All-American high school players. So I went to Frank McGuire and I said, Frank, listen, I really appreciate uh, the fact that you gave me an opportunity. And, uh, you know, I'd like to switch over to baseball. And he said, hey, I'm a big baseball fan. Go over there and play baseball and keep your basketball scholarship. So that was a pretty uh, nice thing for him to do. So I give him a lot of credit for for helping me. But I can honestly say, guys, if I did not play that one year and practice every day with those guys, I probably would not have had the baseball career that I had because – I'll tell you, that one year practicing against those players made a man out of me and really toughened me up and really helped me uh, overcome a lot of adversity on my way to the big leagues. It's interesting to note how certain things change the career paths of everyone. And like you said, that shift pays off. 77-year team under first-year coach June Raines advanced to the finals of the College World Series only to lose to the champion Arizona State. You're the game one starter on that team. That team featured four future major leaguers, pitcher Randy Martz, uh, future Met teammate Mookie Wilson, reliever Jim Lewis, and yourself. Your play draws the interest of the Texas Rangers who draft you. They assign you to the Gulf Coast League affiliate. You rapidly move up the organization ladder for Texas, getting an all-star bid with Asheville of the Texas A Western Carolinas League, a promotion to AA Tulsa during 78. You then win 10 games to the AAA uh, Toros in 79. Who was your biggest influence You know, coming up the, the Texas ladder? Who was the guy that really helped you turn your career you know, to, to make you that major leaguer? Well, you know, I don't want to sound selfish or anything, but, you know, back in those days, uh, a lot of the clubs that, that in the minor leagues, I, we did not have a full-time pitching coach on, like, my A club or my double-A club. And, you know, I, we, we tended to really help each other. But uh, there was a pitching coordinator by the name of Dick Such who helped me a lot. And um, But really, I mean, you had to learn a lot of these things by yourselves and work work yourself through it. I think players today are so overcoached it's really incredible from the time they're little kids um so i think i think it's better if you learn something on your own than if somebody tells you how to do something so uh i you know i give credit later on to a lot of people that helped me make the um adjustments i need to make at the major league level but back in those days in the mid-70s you're really on your own in the minor leagues to try to make yourself a better player so nobody had a pitch count for you you know, what's interesting, you know, I don't want to sound like Abe Lincoln here or anything, but, <laughs> you know, my first full season in the minor leagues was 1978. I, I, yeah. I signed after the World Series in 77, went to rookie ball. Then the next year, as you guys said, I went to A and AA. And then the next year was 79, I pitched in AAA. I had 11 complete games in each of those two years. And I bet you you can count on one hand in the minor leagues this year how many nine-inning complete games <laughs> there were below the AAA level. So you really did learn how to, to go through lineups more than twice, to get yourself out of jams late in the game, how to strategically choose your pitches in order to get people out, not just once in the first inning, but to get them out three times. And I think a lot of that, that is lost now in our game, certainly at the big league level. 
I, I love when, when you hear when you mention you know guys that coached like Dick Such was a, a pitcher for the Washington Senators who pr- he probably played under both Billy Martin and Ted Williams. So yeah. it's pretty interesting when you you get to hear those names. So the Rangers are on the outside looking in in the American League West pennant race in the summer of '79, and they make a trade with the Mets for then veteran first baseman Willie Montanez. The deal called for the Mets to receive two players to be named. One was veteran utility man Mike Jorgensen, who oh, they returned re- right to the Mets. To the Mets. Yeah. And the other was you. What was your reaction? You know, it's always you know, difficult for a guy who's grown up in an organization to be all of a sudden never to play a major league game for that organization and get traded. What was your initial reaction to that? Well, you know, it's funny. I was at home. The season had ended. It was, uh, as you said, September. I was getting ready to go to instructionally with the Rangers, and I was at my parent living with my parents, and the phone rang, and it was uh, uh, Joe Klein, who was the director of minor league operations, later the general manager of the Rangers. And uh, he, he called me up and said, hey, Ed, we just made a trade with the Mets. And I'm sitting there going to myself, why is he telling me this? Because <laughs> I, I was so naive as to you know, the mechanics of the industry. And I finally dawned on me, it's like, oh, my God, I just got traded. And it was the greatest thing that ever happened to me. My whole family's from New York. My, you know, I was born in Brooklyn. I'm the youngest of my family, so all my older siblings and both of my parents grew up in Bay Ridge. And, you know, my parents were Dodger fans. So to get traded to the National League team in New York was a very thrilling thing. So it was the greatest thing that ever happened to me. We're talking with former Met Ed Lynch. He spent most of the 1980 season pitching for the Tidewater Tides. The Mets AAA team in Norfolk, Virginia that year. That team had guys like Wally Backman, Yubi Brooks, your former teammate Mookie Wilson. Was there a different feeling being part of that Met organization, which definitely was on the upswing at that point, as opposed to the Texas Ranger organization that you had spent your entire minor league career up until that point? Yeah, I, I believe so. You know, the Mets were in the process of being sold right when I got traded over. The uh, uh, Joan Payson, I believe, was in the process of selling the club to, to uh, Nelson Doubleday. And once Nelson took over and Fred Wilpon, I mean, you could tell that they were going to invest the time, resources, money to have the best personnel, the best facilities. Um, Texas was really kind of a shoestring operation when I played for them in the minor leagues. For instance, in 79, on that club that I won 10 games, not one player got called up in September of that year. And because they wanted to save uh, money and not pay a, a young guy to, you know, one month's salary. So it shows you how, how much of a shoestring organizations, and, and they were not alone in that kind of philosophy. So the game has come a long way in terms of financial and resource commitment. And, but I could tell right away, it's certainly when the club was sold, that the Mets were going to be a first-class operation. You get the call to the big leagues in late August when Met pitcher Craig Swan went down with shoulder trouble. You make your major league debut August 31st, 1980. I can't believe it, it was 1980, so many years already, in Candlestick Park. What do you remember most about being called up? Who was the person that, that you know, gave you the news that you were heading up to the big club? And that walk to the mound the first time to face Mike Ivey at Candlestick Park. Well, boy, you guys have done your research yeah. on all this stuff. But, uh, you know, Joe McDonald was really the general manager who was – they were in a transition then. Uh, Frank Cashin hadn't come in yet. They were in the, in the process of changing front office. So Joe McDonald's the one that told me I was going to the big leagues. And, you know, back in those days, uh, you really had to – when you got to the big leagues, unless you were a superstar-type player like a Dwight Gooden or guys like Ron Darling or that type of player, you really had to earn – 
the opportunity to, to start a game. So I started my entire career in the minor leagues. I, I don't know if I even had a relief appearance in the minor leagues. So when I got to the big leagues in Candlestick Park and, and uh, Mel Stottlemyre, excuse me, it was uh, Bill Mambouquet, I think, or, or no, Rube Walker was the pitching coach. That's correct. Rube Walker said, hey, go down the bullpen. We might use you in relief. And, and I was kind of shocked. <laughs> and, and, when they, and when the phone rang and they told me to get up, I really didn't even know how to warm up as a reliever. I was so used to warming up as a starter. And obviously I was very nervous like any player would be. And I remember coming into the game at Candlestick Park, and Mike Ivey, as you said, was the first hitter. And the first pitch I threw in the big leagues was a routine ground ball to shortstop. And it took a bad hop. It hit Frank Tavares in the throat, and it bounced over in foul territory. And he laid on the ground for about 10 minutes, and they came out with a stretcher and everything. And there I am on the mound just chewing my fingernails off. So I gave up a, a leadoff double to Mike Ivey. And I think I gave up four runs in that inning. And, uh, and it was a very stressful situation. You know, and the thing about that is, I didn't pitch for 13 days after that. And as you said, we lost 13 in a row. And here I am as a young pitcher coming up, never relieved in a game, gave up four runs. Now I'm sitting there, and we're losing every night. Finally, after 10 days, I went into Joe Torrey's office, and I said, Joe, am I ever going to pitch again? He says, you're pitching Saturday against the Cubs. (laughs) I don't know if they were testing me or what. And then I went out, as you said, and I won on Saturday to break a 13-game losing streak. So... Young players were treated a lot differently back then. And, you know, for instance, I think I had, I wore three different numbers in the first two weeks in the big leagues with no name on the back. Everybody else had a name and I didn't. So I can't imagine a young player coming to the big leagues now going out there with no name on the back of his shirt. But that's just the way it was back then. You know, young players got treated a lot differently than they do now. But it was a stressful thing going to the big leagues and trying to feel comfortable there. As we mentioned, you joined the Mets at the very beginning of their rebuild, and you become a mainstay of the team as it's rebuilt, which includes some very bad seasons, and then the turning of the corner in 84-85. What point did you realize that, okay, this team is legit, this team has a chance at you know, champ- not only championship, but maybe multiple championships? Well, I think there was a couple of things. I, I remember in spring training of 1982, uh, I was at Huggins-Stengel Field in St. Petersburg, and Lou Gorman, the, one of the, the front office guys, was there and said, hey, we just made a trade. Uh, I saw you know, a lot of press were around Lee Mazzilli. We traded Lee Mazzilli to the Texas Rangers, of all places, for Ron Darling and Walt Terrell. And then he, he started gushing about Ron Darling, how good he is. He's gonna, I remember he said he was going to be a matinee idol, so I assume he was a good-looking guy, which he turned out to be, obviously. And Walt Terrell was a real bulldog, sinker ball, tough guy. And then I started to look around and said, you know, they're adding good players. But I think the one thing that really showed me that we're going in a different direction is when we made the trade for Keith Hernandez, June 15, 1983. I think we traded Rick Ombi and Neil Allen to the St. Louis Cardinals. And at that time, all the pitchers on the Mets were thrilled. Number one, we're going to get Keith Hernandez on our team. And number two, we don't have to face him anymore. (laughs) Because he was, you know... It was just four years earlier where he was, you know, the uh, MVP of the National League. And it was only a couple of years earlier that he won a batting title. And, you know, he was off the charts defensively. So this is a, a player that we just did not have that caliber of player. And then after he came over and we saw the, the leadership skills that he portrayed, I, I knew right there 
that we were going to be pretty good. And and right around that time, we got Keith Daryl Strawberry came up from the minor leagues, and you know his talent was just so evident. So I just saw that you know we kept adding better better players, young players, veteran players. So right around the middle of '83, I, I realized that this club was going to be good and be good for a long time. So let, let's foreshadow for a second what you ended up doing after your playing days ended, and you ended up working for a number of years as the general manager of the Cubs. What did you see at this point in your playing career? You're watching a team be put together. Any lessons you took away from that you remembered years later, saying watching how a team was put together and run? Well, I, I think the the biggest thing is is you have to build through the draft and player development. You have to have the players not only to help your major league club, but you have to have players, even if you have an excess, even if you have like three really good shortstops, you can always turn those players into uh, the areas that you need. And also I learned the valuable lesson that there's no substitute for good pitching. (laughs) You are not going to slug your way to a a world championship or even a division title. I mean, you have to have the pitching. You have to be able to send a pitcher out there every day that's a challenge for the other team to score runs, and you have to build a bullpen. Now, times have changed. I mean, for instance, in 1985, I had six complete games. There isn't a team in baseball (laughs) right now that has six complete games, and I was like a nobody compared to, you know, some other guys. I think Dwight had 20 complete games that year. I mean, there's six teams in the National League with no complete games. And my point is, not only do you have to find the starting pitching now, but you have to have an excess of bullpen. If you're going to continue to operate under the current system in terms of pitchers' philosophy when they go on on that mound, where the average start in the big leagues is probably somewhere between five and a third and five and two-thirds innings, you're going to have three or four innings every night where you've got to have somebody out there in that bullpen. So I think building a club now is a lot more heavily dependent on relievers if you're going to continue to have starting pitchers pitch the way they do now. So, but the one thing I learned from the Mets is it's almost like the stock market. Buy low, sell high. Buy low, sell high. You know, they, they made the trades that they had. You know, they, they had all these good young players in the minor leagues. They were able to turn them into Gary Carter. And that, that's the guy that put us over the top from 84 to 85 and then into 86. So the thing I learned the most is accumulate as many good young players as you can and use them to fill the needs that you have at the big league level. No game you know, brings up the point more than that just made is today's Met game. 14 pitchers used in the yeah. game, seven in both teams in a nine-inning game. Okay, yeah, so you, you do rely on pitching. You, you have to have guys that can go out there and take the ball. There was a September ball. game, which changes it. That, that is true bit. as well. But, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned all these changes leading up to that 86 team. So now you've in, you endured some of the really bad growing pains in, in the early 80s, you know, turning the quarter 82, 83 through Keith. How frustrating is it that in the year that they win the championship that, that you're traded away to the Cubs? I have to imagine that that's both frustrating and somewhat devastating to see the guys that you went to battle and grew with win the championship and you not being part of that. Yeah, it was, it was a very uh, disappointing day when I, when I found out. But, I, I, you know, I had knee surgeries, you guys said. Yeah. I went down to Norfolk on a rehab assignment, and I was down in, in Norfolk, and I'm looking at the Mets pitching staff, and, you know, they had 10 pitchers on the club. We only carried 10 pitchers then. And the 10th pitcher on the club was Rick Aguilera. So I'm thinking to myself, 
I'm mature enough to know at the time, hey, I'm uh, you know I'm almost thirty, I'm thirty years old. I'm not a kid. I understand the business of this game. There's no way that they're going to bring me back and take a chance on losing someone like an Aguilera. I mean, their their pitching staff is just too good right now. So I fully anticipated it and. You know, I found out I was traded. Uh, I was in Norfolk, and I picked up the New York Times, and then there was a little headline that said, Lynch trade expected today. And I'm reading it, and my phone rang. <laughs> and that's how I, you know, I found out. So, But the interesting thing is, when I went over to the Cubs, I wound up pitching, as you said, I pitched an inning in 86 for the Mets at knee surgery. Then I came off the DL, got traded to the Cubs, and I pitched against the, the 86 Mets at yep. Wrigley Field. I pitched against Dwight Gooden at Wrigley Field that year. So I pitched for him. I pitched against him. So I don't think anybody else did that. You know, it's interesting to note that four members of the 86 squad who made small contributions to that team, Terry Lynch, Randy Myers, Tim Cochran, and John Mitchell, were not awarded World Series rings. But General Manager Frank Cashman made certain that you received one. What does that ring mean to you? And does the fact that Frank Cashin made sure you got it add significance to it? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I was there. Those other guys weren't there very long. I was there for five and a half years or six years before I got traded. And uh, plus, you know, the, the other thing I did when I got traded, you know, again, I was mature enough to know. And a lot of the writers were baiting me and getting me to say negative things. Even back then, you know, believe it or not, getting me to say negative things about the Mets. And I wouldn't do it. I, I said, you know, they're a great club. Frank Cash has done a great job. I have nothing to gain by burning those bridges, and uh, and I didn't. So I think that was part of it, too. But I think they regret at that time not giving out rings to more people. And I think they, they uh, remedied that. I think Fred Wolpon uh, might have remedied that but later on and given out some rings later on to some players. So, yeah, I, I still cherish that ring uh, very much. It means a lot to me, even though I only pitched one inning with that club. I was there for six years prior. so Plus, Keith Hernandez says I can wear it, so I have his permission, so I can wear it when I want. <laughs> so after two seasons with the Cubs, your playing career ends. You enroll at University of Miami to pursue a law degree. Shortly after that, you're hired as director of player development for the Padres by Joe McElvain. Then San Diego's, um, he was then the San Diego Padres general manager. You end up eventually becoming the Cubs GM, and it's hard to believe that it's been 18 years since you stepped down as the Cubs GM. So, you know, the game has changed so much in the 18 years, the role of sabermetrics, things that were cornerstones of teams back then, low strikeout guys, guys who could steal 30 bases. That's not the hot commodity anymore. A guy like Ed Lynch, who manager George Bamberg loved because you were defensively sound, always put yourself in position to field your position. Uh, you used the slide step to hold runners on. You could bunt a runner over and help yourself. Davey Johnson loved you because whether you were a spot starter, long man, short man in the bullpen, no matter what way he used you, he felt you could get the job done. So if you were a GM in today's game and looked at you from a sabermetric standpoint, would you even be a player that got a second look? That's, that's a great question because I, I tell people now it would be very difficult for me to get the first opportunity before other guys to pitch in the big leagues. But I would get an opportunity to pitch in the big leagues uh, now because I think a couple of years ago I looked, I think 755 pitchers appeared in the big leagues uh, in, I think, 2000 and maybe 16, which is incredible. That's 25 pitchers per club. And I look at the 1983 Mets, and I think we had 15 pitchers for the entire year, and three of them were September call-ups, and we were not a good club. So with, with the number of injuries now of pitchers and the fact that 
relievers have to pitch almost four innings every single night, I would get the opportunity. And I will, and and in my day, you know, you the old saying was the mantra then was pitch to contact. Right. You know, the yeah. best yep. the best at bat I could possibly have against a good hitter would be a throw a fastball low and away and him ground out to short or even hit a rocket right at somebody. You know, that was a quality at bat for me as a pitcher versus a good hitter. Now you get penalized. Now it's all swing and miss, swing and miss. They, they, they weigh that much too heavily. I remember when I came up, Joe Torrey sat me down and said, Ed, I want you to throw fastballs low and away until you have to throw something else. So John Stearns was back there, and I'm throwing. He's, he's got the glove out there, and I'm, I, I, I could really command my fastball. And the word command means throwing the ball where you're aiming. So I could throw that fastball low and away, and if I get ahead, I'd move it a couple inches off the plate. And if I, if I didn't get that call, I'd move it back on the plate. It wasn't 100 miles an hour, but it had sink, and it was down, and it was on the corners of the plate. So there were games where I threw – I go three innings without throwing a breaking ball. Now the second time through, here comes these good hitters. I throw them a first pitch slider for a strike. And, you know, they hadn't seen it yet. So I had a philosophy I was going to throw my fastball first time through the lineup. I was going to throw my breaking ball second time through the lineup. And then third, two, third, third time through the lineup, I'd mix them up. So, But now I go out to these games every day here in, in, in Arizona, and I see good young pitchers like a Patrick Corbin, or Zach Godley, they throw. They might have a fastball, curveball, cutter, slider, changeup, and I, I have seen many times them throw every single pitch in their repertoire to the leadoff hitter. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. So, so now number one, I hear all the time, well, he has trouble going through the lineup three times. Well, no kidding. Number one, he's shown everything he has to the leadoff hitter, and number two, he's got 110 pitches by the time he gets through the lineup three times. So there's no way you're going to get through the lineup three times if you, if you pitch that way. If you try to strike every single hitter out or you're trying to have a swing and miss on every, time, every pitch, you know, there's nothing wrong with a, you know, a ball being put in play. Even with some authority, if you can afford to give up a hit, why would you try to strike people out? You know, you'll, you'll, you'll pitch more economically. The players will play better defense behind you. And you have a chance to win more games because you're going to pitch through the fifth, sixth, seventh inning more often. It's exactly what Dwight Gooden told us uh, two weeks ago. Exactly the same. And again, another perfect example of what you're talking about. Today's Met game, 390 pitches total thrown by the two staffs in in a nine-inning game. Ed, thank you so much for your insight tonight. We really appreciate it. And, uh, you know, we'd love to have you on again because we could talk baseball with you all night long for sure. Absolutely. Anytime, guys. You got it. Thanks very much. Thanks so much. Ed Lynch, former New York Met pitcher and Chicago GM.